0: KOSU is a service of Oklahoma State University and podcasts are made possible through the financial support of KOSU listeners. If you're a donor, thank you. And if not, go to KOSU.org and make your donation there. Our radio service is only possible thanks to the generosity of listeners like yourself.
1: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Gun control advocates are wanting to stop the permitless carry law from going into effect on November 1st. The group, which includes Oklahoma City Democratic Representative Jason Lowe and the national group Moms Demand Action, have to gather nearly 60,000 signatures before August 29th to get it before voters in 2020. Now, they've been able to work toward the recall of the bill since the end of the session in May. So. Ryan, why did they wait so long?
2: I mean, my understanding is that they had been working to get something done before now. Uh, But then the shootings in Dayton and El Paso, that's galvanized the nation. And I think that they felt that there was a sense that they had to do something. And so even even though they're getting a late start, I think that there's a lot of political will to change this permitless carry uh, law before it goes into effect. We're seeing you go on social media right now and you see folks going into other states that have permitless carry going into their Starbucks or walking into Walmart with an AR-15 on their back. I don't know if they're doing that to intimidate people because of their ego or their bravado. I think a lot of it has to do with the false sense of security that comes with gun ownership and gun possession that thinks that <clears throat> it makes you think that if you have a gun that you're not vulnerable to the kind of mass shootings that, you know, the tragedies that we're seeing all around the nation. And that's just false. I mean that that false sense of security is actually killing people and if we don't want to be one of those states where, whether it's at your Walmart, your Target, or your your Starbucks, where you see folks carrying AR-15s without any sort of permit or regulations on their backs, we've got to do something now. This seems common sense. Neva.
0: Well, I mean, this is really the to me the height of political grandstanding by Representative Lowe. I mean, you wait until ten days before the deadline to get sixty thousand signatures, and you you really you're just you're just really seizing upon the. Um, Kind of the political climate out there more than the issue itself. I mean, yes, after El Paso and Dayton and the mass shootings, I mean, this seemed like just an opportunity to take to um, uh, to kind of pile on without any opportunity for real success. And I think even Representative Eccles, uh, who was the uh, House author of the of the the bill that was passed and signed by the governor that will go into effect in, on November one. Uh, even he said there's zero possibility I mean zero percent chance that this is going to the ballot so I mean it, it, for folks that have uh, this issue it, that they want to really uh, they really want to uh, push forward and advocate for they need to do it in a, in a way that gets a, a better perception among voters and among citizens particularly here in Oklahoma who do not see the idea of just uh, banning guns and, and going after uh, uh, the Second Amendment Rights of citizens as a way to deal with these larger issues that are on the forefront.
1: Right, have they got a chance of making signatures? I, I think signatures? it's
2: I think it's a real long shot before them to get the signatures before uh, before the deadline at the end of this month. The number of signatures you've got to get in that short period of time just really seems insurmountable. I do think that if they don't get this and that there's not a referendum, that this next legislative session, because November 1, permitless carry goes into effect. And I think that we're going to begin to see what that looks like in Oklahoma. And there's already some sense of reality of what permitless carry and existing gun laws look in Oklahoma, uh, lax gun laws look like in Oklahoma. I mean, we've got the opening of the, the new park in Oklahoma City, and the mayor is having to explain to folks, you can't bring in a ham sandwich that you made at home but because of state law you 're going to be able to bring your own firearm into that grand opening of that of that new park in Oklahoma City so I mean I think that we're beginning to realize that the lax gun laws in Oklahoma create a, a landscape and a false sense of security and the the uh, what we're giving up for that, the exchange for that, is just not really there. It doesn't make us any safer. It actually makes us more dangerous. And you know, don't get me wrong. You know, we could do away with permitless carry, and that doesn't solve things. Assault weapons ban. We need a, a, an actual mandatory gun buyback program. We need some real robust real efforts to get the five million plus assault weapons. That's more assault weapons than the United States military has off the streets in the United States.
0: Well, well, I think I think I think the notion that in Oklahoma we're going to see some groundswell. For uh, real, these these strict gun law gun laws to uh, uh, to come to the legislature in the form of bills and pass uh, this session or any future session is just not likely. I mean, the citizens in Oklahoma, particularly law-abiding gun carrying permit, you know, whether they've had a permit or not, in the future, these are folks who understand that it is their right. They understand that there is a responsibility with that, and I don't. I think to equate so much of what's happening nationally and trying to sensationalize it, as Representative Lowe said, you know, we're going to have the wild, wild west in Oklahoma. I think that's just a bogus argument people are not going to buy into.
1: An Oklahoma County judge declares unconstitutional a controversial law requiring alcohol brands to distribute to all wholesalers. The judge says Senate Bill 608 goes against state question 792, allowing brands to pick and choose their distribution. Neva, are you surprised by this ruling?
0: I'm really not. I think uh, uh, as these folks have said all along that uh, Senate Bill 608 really ignored not only the Uh, the will of the voters, but violated the plain language of the Oklahoma Constitution, I think that's where it's at. It will obviously, uh, uh, we would expect be appealed, but uh, uh, in terms of what's happened to this point, I think it's, uh, in my mind, no big surprise.
2: Ryan? No, it's not a surprise at all. I think that the the plain language of the ballot measure that amended the state constitution is in direct conflict with Senate Bill 608. And whenever you've got a conflict between a statute and the constitution, the constitution wins. And this, I don't think was even a close case. Uh, now I, you know, the policy behind it, I mean, I'm not going to weigh into whether or not the policy of requiring, um, all distributors to carry all brands or allowing, branded uh, uh, manufacturers to choose which distributors they want to use. I mean, that's a a public policy that the legislature needs to consider. They consider that whenever they put it on the ballot and the people of Oklahoma voted for it. Now, the, the plaintiffs in this case, they've said, well, the people didn't realize that there was this uh, this ability to get outside of the requirement that all distributors carry all brands, and they didn't know what they were voting on, and so the legislature tried to fix it. Well, that's all well and good, but if you want to fix the Constitution, you have to fix it with a new amendment. And so that's where, if they want to do something about this, and they need to get out and start gathering signatures and try to get it on the ballot in 2020.
1: And opponents of 608 say they are going to immediately appeal it to the state supreme court. How long do you think it will be before the supreme court hears something?
0: Well, I mean, I don't know. I've asked, I've asked folks that very question, and I think uh, most people presume that it'll be, um, you know, well into next year. This will not be a short. Uh, this will not be a short-term uh, fix in terms of uh, the appeal process. But I think the threshold. In an appeal like this, is a much higher threshold. I mean, I yeah. think I'm not the lawyer, yeah. you know, speaking about it, but I, I think on just TV. having just having observed this over time, I mean, the um, uh, the argument is more now on the, on the law than on on the facts <laughs> that uh, that we're talking about with respect to the uh, uh, this alcohol distribution question. So it will be fascinating to see if there's any uh, if there's really a pivot when it gets you know further down the road. But right now, I think uh, I think what we see is something that uh, uh, the court will just have to look at uh,
1: with the appeal. And right, yeah. the law's on hold right now. Could the state Supreme Court just simply say, no, we're not going to hear it and just keep referring I, I think to the Oklahoma that's, County I think that rule? it's more
2: likely that they, they don't hear it or they issue a very short order affirming the lower court's decision here. Because again, I mean, the, the plaintiffs, by the very nature of their argument, what they're saying is that the voters didn't understand the ballot measure, that they didn't know that that's what they were voting for and the legislature needed to come and clean it up. That argument is just not enough. I mean, frankly, what what you would need to, to read something different into that constitutional amendment that was passed at the ballot in 2016, that's just not enough. And and there's there's no legal argument that gets you around that. I mean, the clear and plain language of the of the ballot measure that was ultimately amended that ultimately amended the constitution said that these uh, manufacturers get to elect which distributors they want to use. And again, the public policy behind that, you know, good or bad. You can't fix a constitutional amendment with a state statute.
1: While we were away for the summer, some stories took off, like supporters of Medicaid expansion beginning the quest to get their petition before voters. As a constitutional amendment, they need to collect 178,000 signatures before October 28th. Ryan, is this a doable task?
2: I I think it's more than doable. I'd be surprised if they don't turn in a couple hundred thousand signatures um, before that deadline. The the effort that's being put together here, led by Amber England, uh, who's the campaign manager for the Medicaid expansion campaign, is one of the most professional ballot measure campaigns that I've, I've ever seen in the state of Oklahoma. Their signature collection effort that includes both volunteers and I think some paid signature collectors out there, they're going to get to this number not only because they've got a good professional organization, but because the people of Oklahoma are behind this. This is one of the few issues where we really see uh, a marriage of people uh, uh, rural Oklahoma and urban Oklahoma coming together and saying that they want this to happen, and in particular in rural Oklahoma, where they're seeing the hospital closures, hospitals filing bankruptcy. I think we're you know close to ten or a dozen uh, hospitals that have either filed bankruptcy or closed their doors. And you know there's a story this morning about the state labor department talking about unpaid hospital workers uh, that are getting laid off from these hospitals. They're getting laid off, and when you ask why is this, it's because of uncompensated care, and that uncompensated care is there because of the failure of the state legislature to expand Medicaid. So doing this, you know, protects those rural hospitals. They're going to get these signatures. I think they'll beat the deadline. You know, maybe even by a week.
1: Neva.
0: I, I no question they've got ten weeks left. I think they get the signatures. They get more than sufficient signatures to uh, uh, to get it on the ballot in twenty twenty. I think the bigger question still in my mind is, uh, will the legislature and and the governor and his administration get more proactive in this in this dialogue and look at other options? I mean, it seems like there's been this back and forth. I think most folks understand the reality of what's going on in healthcare in Oklahoma both the, the rural hospitals healthcare in general and the need to uh, to have it, have more dollars uh, in in the mix now just wholesale expand Medi- medicaid take the money and uh, all of the unintended consequences that come down the road with that That's the big question. Is there a better way? Is there a smarter way? Is there a way to look at what other states have done, uh, the failures some states have made uh, in how they've approached this and the successes other states have had, and see in this legislative working group that's studying uh, the the issue of health care at the legislature, they met – Earlier this week, we'll continue to meet, I think the next meeting's uh, in a week, um, and get more serious about it, not just look at PowerPoint presentations as they did this week from the health department and the health care authority, but get in the weeds and start really being more engaged in a significant public policy debate. Ryan,
1: this uh, legislature has been more reactive than proactive when it comes to, for example, medical marijuana and teacher pay raises, waiting until other people have done something. How likely is it do you think they'll come up with something in the next session? I mean, They have I, to come up with it uh, in the next session. Yeah, I
2: mean, they'd have to do it in the next session or, or in a special session. I, I don't think that that's going to happen. We thought maybe at the beginning of summer we might see a special session. I think the odds of that are really low at this point. Um, the greatest political threat to this ballot measure is if the legislature acts. If the legislature acts and puts their own plan out there, that's the biggest political threat to the passage of this ballot measure because i think if they get the signatures which which they will and this goes on the ballot which it will the people of oklahoma will vote for it unless there is a measure that the legislature puts forward that the that the people of oklahoma or a majority of voters feel addresses the issue and provides a better solution to what this ballot measure does, what that solution is, whether the legislature can get there. I mean, they've had, you know, eight years now. I mean, we're we're almost, we're almost a a decade out from the passage of the affordable care act and they haven't done anything. And so, and the, the urgency here with, with medical marijuana, I mean, again, we're looking at a statutory change there. This would amend the constitution. So if the legislature wants to do something and they want to have some control over Medicaid expansion in Oklahoma, They've got to do it this session because once this thing goes into the Constitution, their ability to go in and have their own plan substitute for it It's going to be a lot harder.
0: It's also important to note that the governor and his administration, if they want to deal with the top 10 issue and they want to deal with health care, then they're going to have to be very proactive and engaged in this conversation. And I think what we saw in this first um, committee meeting is basically the new Deputy uh, Secretary of uh, Health and Mental Health, uh, Carter Kimball. I mean, he engaged and asked uh, and made some comments that basically were pretty, I thought, thought provoking, uh, saying that, Oklahoma is sixth, I believe, in uh, uh, the United States in mental health providers per capita, but 42nd in outcomes. Talked about how we're 26th in public health spending or funding, and yet we're 47th in outcomes. I mean, the bottom line is, you heard the bureaucrats in that meeting basically saying, not the administration, but the the folks out of these agencies saying, what we need is more money and maybe we should also uh, repeal the prohibition on cities and counties to be able to uh, set their own tobacco policies. I mean, it's not just about more money. It's about it's about creating a system that delivers the health care access to the people across the state of Oklahoma that are desperately needed.
1: Another big story over the summer is Governor Stitt's plan to renegotiate the gaming compacts with Oklahoma tribes. This unified tribal leaders in opposition to any renegotiating. And we do want to mention United for Oklahoma is an underwriter for KOSU. Stit says the compacts expire on January 1st, but the tribes say they automatically renew. So, Neva, who is right here?
0: Well, I think that's the big question, and I think it's interesting that just this week yeah. uh, that, that there's been a pivot on this. The governor uh, basically now is uh, uh, charging or tasking the attorney general to uh, handle uh, the gaming uh, compacts. And and basically, I think we're seeing a situation where the governor it, it clearly, um, in Many people's view got bad legal interpretation and, and information. Much, much, uh, much of that occurred in the previous administration with Mary Fallon, where and more than once uh, the BIA said, "Look, you guys are not clearly understanding and interpreting what the law says here, uh, with respect to uh, the uh, the Indian gaming." And so, I think what we've got is a situation where it's not going to be my way of the highway. It's get everyone to the table, look forward, and have uh, have a conversation that really uh, engages uh The industry, and when you look at tribal gaming, they make the point clear: we're the eighth largest uh, industry in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, we are an active business partner in Oklahoma, and we need to be treated with uh, uh, with that uh, level of respect that any other business or industry in Oklahoma should get. So, I think I think whatever the miscues, whatever the wherever it was uh, a month ago, I think they now need to get to the table and move forward. I think it's wise that the governor also said that there should be house uh, designee and a senate designee uh, in this process it just helps for efficient communication you know as the legislature uh, engages in this so uh, the long and the short of it is it uh, January 2020 the the uh, uh, compacts uh, and and all of this discussion about renegotiation or not renegotiation uh, needs to take place and it needs to take place in the next few
2: months Ryan, yeah I mean the the compacts themselves so if you look at the model compact that the tribes have have signed and you Go, go back to the Wayback Machine and go back uh, to 2004 when the state of Oklahoma and the tribes were negotiating the original compact and the exclusivity fee. And that's the fee that the tribes pay whenever they are basically given a, an almost total, not a total, but an almost total monopoly mm-hmm. over class, th- class three gaming in the state of Oklahoma. The, the exclusivity fee there... That was lower than a lot of states around us, but the state, but the state's tribes recognized that they were taking a huge risk. The state recognized that they were taking a huge risk and that the payoff, if it were there, would be beneficial for everyone. It would be r- beneficial for the sovereign nations of the many tribes in the state of Oklahoma and their governments and their people but it would also be beneficial to all Oklahomans. And we're talking almost almost a million jobs in the state of Oklahoma, billions of dollars in investment over the last uh, 15 years, and not just in gaming. I'm talking about economic development, healthcare, infrastructure. The, uh, The tribes and their jurisdictions have become so important to the communities that are around them, that it's almost inseparable as to you know what's what is it that they're doing versus what the state's doing, and in many cases they're doing more than the state. You know, Chief Elect uh, Chuck Hoskin of the Cherokee Nation. Chief, Chief I'm sorry, yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Chief Hoskin <laughs> of the, <laughs> of, the <laughs> uh, of, of, of the Cherokee Nation. You know, his you know his comment about you know here's the state they're in, they're in economic turmoil, and we're yeah. we're looking at a uh, the specter of a global recession. Returns coming in and revenue are you know better, but not as great as we had expected governor stitt had a good year last year but if the budget is going to continue they need more revenue and so you know uh, uh, chief hoskins like well don't look to us you know we're doing our job and don't come to us looking for more revenue when we took this big uh, risk 15 years ago and we've invested in the state of oklahoma if the governor and the attorney general want to negotiate this i think that they need to come to the table with something for the tribes to look at and if they don't the compact you know i you know looking at it as long as there are some non-tribal entities that have class 3 gaming then this thing's going to renew on january 1 and it will renew for another 15 years and you know there i mean i guess you could say that maybe the bia wouldn't approve the renewal or there could be some some you know uh cloud there as to what would actually happen but I think that if nobody can come to the table in good faith, this is going to renew on January 1, and it's a done deal. You
0: know, and it's interesting, in the governor's letter in July, I mean, he indicated that he not only wanted to renegotiate the fees, but he wanted to renegotiate the entire compact. And I think I think that's where um, the tribes were kind of set, you know, really kind of caught off guard and and really didn't uh, understand kind of what uh, precipitated this whole engagement with them in, in that way, kind of with this frontal assault as they viewed it. and. And I think when you, again, most Oklahomans I don't think recognize that Oklahoma is second in the nation in the number of casinos, only behind Nevada. Uh, 134 casinos right now uh, and also the largest single casino in the country. So, I mean, this is an industry that obviously, I mean, you can talk about all of the things that – that uh, are involved in terms of uh, uh, of uh, the Native Americans and the tribes and and what they do in terms of their involvement uh, across Oklahoma. But in this issue, you're talking about a lot of money, and and so the issue is going to have to be one that is honestly brokered at the table by all parties. And I think this uh, the the kind of the tone that set this whole thing in motion was so uh, counter to what anyone had seen in the past that it really kind of um, made the situation situation at least perceptually more toxic than anyone felt was necessary at not a good start to this situation. yeah yeah absolutely. and there are
2: diamond dy- dynamics that that come out of the even the teacher walkout because if you if you think about it if the if there's going to be a renegotiation you have to think of what each party can bring to the table you know, on one hand you've got the the tribes and on the other hand you've got the state of oklahoma well the if you want that the tribes could pay a higher exclusivity fee i mean that would be something that they could give up but it would have to be an exchange for something well the legislature already amended uh the compact or, or had language that amended what's allowed under the compact last year with ball and dice and so they gave that up there's a sense that the state could give sports betting but if you, and sports betting you know may sound great but to our listeners if you think about sports betting the revenue that it brings in in places like las vegas is really really small compared to what they make from their electronic games yeah, there has to be some given and, and take. so yeah. if they give sports gaming to tribes most tribes have said they're not necessarily inter- interested in that it's it's a lot of infrastructure uh, to build up and the revenue is really ebb and flow uh, from month to month so they're like this is you're not really giving us anything so it's interesting to see if stitt has a plan if governor stitt has a plan What is he bringing to the tribes and saying, I will give you this in exchange for maybe a higher exclusivity Especially
0: when the conversation that he initiated was basically, let's start from scratch. I mean, that's that's a a pretty dramatic uh, shift in thinking. And it also, when you lace it with the idea that uh, allowing commercial gaming in Oklahoma, uh, such as is permitted in Nevada, that that would be, you know, he indicated would be the last resort. But the fact that that was even laid out on the the table as something that might be a leverage point I think I think again uh, as with any negotiations or renegotiations on any level with any industry there has to be uh, uh, all parties come to the table and deal in good faith and deal
1: deal in a way that's best for all Oklahomans. Governor Stitt plans to reopen an Oklahoma office in Washington D.C. for the first time since 1995. The original office created by former Governor David Walters was closed by then-Governor Frank Keating. While the Oklahoma delegation, including Senator Jim Inhofe, opposed the Oklahoma office in 1995, the idea is now getting support from our representatives and senators. Ryan, what do you think of this idea? I
2: think it's a great idea. I mean, so much of what impacts Oklahoma happens in Washington, and mm-hmm. of, of course we have our, our elected delegation there um, that, that represents us both in Congress and the Senate. But our executive branch and their interaction with the federal government isn't just with our elected representatives; it's with you know many federal agencies, many granting agencies, and so the. Having a seat at the table and being able to have you know, long-developed relationships uh, or long-standing developed relationships uh, in Washington is really important for the people of Oklahoma. I, you know, Whether it's a Democratic governor, uh, Walter's putting this forward, or, or now Governor Stitt, it's a good idea.
0: Never. Absolutely, I agree. It's a good idea, and I think it's a little bit ironic that it was uh, it was the uh, online news site Nondoc, that actually <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> broke this story that everybody now this week has followed up on. And it's clear that that this conversation and this whole idea is something that has uh, been on the front burner for quite a while. Yeah. They they appear to be well down the road in terms of, uh, as was indicated by his uh, spokeswoman, the governor's spokeswoman, say, saying that they would probably do interviews uh, next month, try to have this in place by the end of the year. So this is something that just didn't get uh, uh, on the conversation starter in in a few weeks. It's been ongoing. And I think the delegation uh, for a long, long time, as you say, Ryan, has supported the notion because it is. It does help to have that conversation, that interaction, those relationships in Washington so that when conflicts or issues arise, as we've seen uh, with uh, uh, issues of uh, um, Medicaid and, and uh, some of the the federal dollars coming in and whether or not they were appropriately used and whether or not they had to be reimbursed and all of these issues that start to add up and can become millions and millions of dollars that are in question. Those things oftentimes can be alleviated just by having uh, just by having that conversation of face-to-face or the interaction that comes with having the office. I think it's also, you know, kind of as a sidebar uh, in in the uh, Kind of the uh, tweeting back and forth that uh, Governor Walters, you know, weighed in with uh, 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 weighed in with this uh, whole matter and said that you know yes, it is a good idea. He made the point that uh, we get ten billion dollars annually from the federal government, and so this is just another way he did it twenty six years ago. It was a success. I think the gov- that Governor Stitt uh, approaching and doing it now in his administration in the first year will also be a very successful venture. Right,
1: because in the world of communications, we're we're all very connected as far. As emails, we can get in touch. With, but having that person there as a liaison for the governor in Washington, DC, really or multiple people,
2: I mean, we, yeah. we've got it, we've got a delegation now that includes a Democratic member, there could be a, a future Democratic members uh, in the legislature as well. And so having people that can speak to our, our representatives in Congress in Washington, and and know what, what are the needs in Oklahoma, you know, if if something is happening in the state legislature, it doesn't operate independent from what's happening at the federal level. And so being able to have somebody on the ground that you could just pick up the phone, or even you know walk across mm-hmm. the street and grab a cup of coffee with and say you know tell me what's happening here uh, that's going to be really important for oklahoma and
0: it's important to remember that a third of the state budget comes from federal dollars i mean it's this is a, in order for oklahoma government to function those federal dollars flowing into the state across the spectrum and not just education and DHS and uh, the health care authority which would be the three largest uh, but you know in so many other facets I mean it is absolutely crucial in this in this day and time to be able to make sure that there is efficiency that we're not leaving money on the table back there that many argue sometimes we do just because we aren't more engaged and more proactive Mm -hmm. on the federal side
1: And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.